I put in 50,000 personally. And that was, you know, a really exciting time for me because mm. I'd seen the track record of both of these individuals and where this is going to go. I just couldn't, couldn't wait. Things started happening. The investors are happy. We're going forward, going forward. And suddenly we're not making the numbers that everything looked so good on paper. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Today's episode is sponsored by the Valuation Masterclass Online, the complete, proven, step-by-step -step online course to guide you from novice to valuation expert. Podcast listeners can claim your amazing 35% discount by going to myworstinvestmentever.com slash deals. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest Eric Severson. Eric, are you ready to rock? Absolutely ready to rock. It's a nice sunny day here in Los Angeles, so I'm ready to go. Yeah. All right. Well, let me tell the audience about you. Ordinary to extraordinary is something, Eric. Severson lives by, and he's been pretty successful at it. Born into an average lower middle class family, Eric received no support from school counselors and others, but he didn't let them crush his desire to accomplish amazing things. Eric also took life experiences like rejection from his dream school, UCLA, and turned them into challenges to overcome. And eventually he did get into UCLA. Eric studied anthropology and used it in business to help the company he works for grow from a value of $7 million to over $100 million in 10 years. He also taught English as a second language for 10 years in Japan, France, Thailand, and universities within the U.S. He has traveled to over 80 countries around the world and 49 states in the U.S. He has ridden a motorcycle on six continents and crossed the U.S. on one twice. He also climbs mountains, having summited the highest peak of eight countries and five states. He even once had a machine gun stuck in his mouth in Nigeria. <laughs> Eric, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life. All right. That was a great dramatic reading of a few of the things from my life. And uh, thanks, Andrew. I'm stoked to be here. Really excited about your show. Like everybody, I've had ups and downs in life, but it definitely started as a very average life. And I, you know, didn't get good grades growing up very much. I had support from my parents. I had two older siblings that got a lot of support. And by the time the third one came around three and a half years later, you know, it wasn't quite as, as attentive. And I wasn't lazy, but I just didn't really excel. But I still had big dreams. And, you know, you could say in some ways I was a dreamer. And it wasn't until some people started telling me that these dreams were impossible that I started secretly. It wasn't like, okay, you said it can't be done. I'm going to do it here. But I started secretly working harder towards certain goals. And I ended up accomplishing what I considered some pretty amazing things. And the reason I like that kind of idea of ordinary to extraordinary so much, and my book, I have a book that came out last year called Ordinary to Extraordinary, is because we have a lot of people who have had some sort of cathartic experience of tragedy that caused some big change in their life. And they suddenly went on to greatness. And I didn't, I really had an average life, but I simply chose to do things people said I couldn't and worked through that and made them happen. 
I think talking with you pre-recording a little bit was great. I think we have some very big similarities. One of mine was there was a real big on-off switch when I was in about 11th grade, actually exactly, halfway through my 11th grade year, where I'd been getting C average by, you know, trying but not really, and, and I, something clicked, and I wanted to be a university professor, and suddenly the classes that were difficult for me became easy. The books that were boring became exciting, and I thrived academically. So I decided to apply to UCLA, my dream school. My counselor, we have a half hour counselor session as a senior to decide what we're going to do with our lives. And she walked in and she said, Eric, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, well, I'm going to go to UCLA. She leaned away from the desk, pushed herself forward and said, you'll never get into a school like that. And that was my whole meeting. And I, my jaw dropped. I didn't know. I sat there wanting to kind of cry. I couldn't leave the room because I was kind of tearing up a little bit. And in the end, I applied to UCLA and guess what happened? They rejected me. So I spent two years in community college doing the work it had to, to get to my dream school. And in the end, I went to UCLA and graduated with highest honors and that was all great. So again, just kept working towards things. And I believe that there are doors open to everybody all around us. And I saw opportunities and I opened them and that led me to places like Japan, places like Thailand, Nigeria, like you mentioned, where I had a machine gun and stuck in my mouth. And these travels, they helped me see the world kind of in a different way and get really excited for more opportunities. And eventually it led me into business and I did that begrudgingly, but I ended up loving it. Hmm, exciting. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, fun talking before the interview and I was telling you also about my turning point, which was, when I went into an economics class, when I hadn't taken any business classes or anything, and I walked into that class, there was 200 people in the class. I can literally see the classroom so clearly right now. I can see it was an auditorium. It was split down the middle, and I can see that there was a bunch of green chalkboards with the sliders, so you know, slide up the one and slide down the other. I mean, I can just see, and I can't remember the name of the professor, but he walked in. And he said, welcome to macroeconomics, you know, 101. There's 200 people in this room. I'm going to draw a line down the middle and half of you will be gone by the time this class is over. For the other remaining 100, I'm only going to give out 10 A's. Let's get started. And it was just something about that challenge that just something clicked in me. And it caused me to change the way I thought, the way I studied, everything to try to overcome. And for some reason, it made me want to be that 10. And I did get an A in there, but I totally changed my style of studying and preparing myself before and after lectures. And it, it became really the, the thing that made me a much more successful student. But that turning point, to explain another aspect of it, I've been going through all my books over the holiday. And there's a book, like almost a pamphlet, and it says, stop procrastinating, just do it. And I remember that my dad gave me that book when I was like, I don't know, 16, 17, because he was just tired of seeing me lay around on the sofa, not really, you know, making anything of myself. And I can just remember him giving me that. And then I think, you know, there's nobody in this world that would ever think that I need that book now. So the point is, people change. Absolutely, Andrew. That's really cool. And when you mentioned that to me earlier, I had a similar situation where it was an anthropology class and the professor at the start, first day, he's going through the syllabus. And then he says, so if everybody, if you come here, you do all your work and turn everything in, you're going to get a C. 
And then he said, and if you really try hard and you really do everything great and you turn everything in and, and study for tests, you're going to get a B. And then he went on and somebody raised their hand and she said, well, how do you get an A? And he says, it's a mystical quality that I can't really describe. So like you, I took it upon myself. I'm going to get an A in this class. And I think a professor like that knows that there are a few students that he's going to really ignite. And that's why they do it. And like you, it propelled me into a little bit of a, a different method. And after getting a C minus on my <laughs> midterm, I realized a big lesson in, it was a three hour essay, in-class essay. And I was I was so comfortable with the information that I was writing, I was writing, I was writing, I was on point three of seven that I wanted to get through and I turned it in and I went to his office afterwards and he says, I know, I could tell you know everything, but you didn't give me an outline. I didn't know where you were going. And mm. that actually changed my life too. And creating a business plan is a lot better to have a detailed business plan than to just kind of start winging in the direction, even if you know what you want to do. Mm. So that, that helped me in a few ways. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, a great intro. Now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. All right, Andrew, I've had a few and one comes to mind. It was a very exciting time. There's this, this guy and I'm going to keep the names here quiet because I'm still in relationships with a lot of these people. No but, so he went to Stanford undergrad, did economics and psychology, never had to study for math in his life, went and got his MBA at Harvard. And he was involved in a lot of different projects. And I kept asking, I want to invest. I want to invest. And he says, wait till it's my own thing. Because he was working on other people's projects. Wait till it's my own thing. And finally, the day arrived where he said, hey, I'm putting together this idea of a vegan restaurant in Los Angeles. And he'd done restaurants before, multiple, multiple restaurants, helped other restaurants grow from a few locations to multiple, always a rock star. And I was totally excited. Finally, he's doing something that I get to be part of. And he was looking for the right chef. I happened to know somebody who published a best-selling book on vegan eating, cooking vegan, and perfect, perfect match, wonderful guy. And so I put the two of them in, in touch and lo and behold, because of me, this great project just might actually take off and get off the ground. So they started working together a little bit and decided that they were going to do something and brought a third person in to be the front of the restaurant. Then comes the process of raising money. I think we raised 2.2 million total and I put in 50,000 personally and that was, you know, a really exciting time for me because mm. I'd seen the track record of both of these individuals and where this is going to go. I just couldn't, couldn't wait. Things started happening. The investors are happy. We're going forward, going forward. And suddenly we're not making the numbers that everything looked so good on paper. All of the performers looked perfect. And I just was counting the money already in my head, of course, mm. and couldn't wait for my bank account to grow. Couldn't wait to be hugs and high fives with all the other people that I knew investing in this because I knew quite a few people who also wanted to be part of this great, great situation. And in the end, things didn't happen just like they had planned. Mm. There are really, what I learned from this kind of to get going in the middle of the story is that you can have the perfect ingredients, but if you don't know how they mix together necessarily, they just might not create the wonder that you needed. And in the end, the financial guy that I knew really well, 
he was doing everything he was supposed to as a financial guy. He was, he had the money, he was buying big machinery for the kitchens and things like that. And then the chef, he was the creative guy. But the problem was the chef wanted to help make financial decisions. The financier wanted to start making some creative decisions. And so there was a little bit of a clash there. And suddenly it started not working out and the chemistry. And then the, the front of the house guy was, had his own issues and he was kind of in between a little bit, bouncing back and forth, still not helping the situation at all. And simple business decisions like knowing that you owe money to A, some guy for something that you owe him money for, and the money's not due for 90 days, that you're gonna pay him on the 89th day. But the chef personally knows this guy, so he wants his buddy to get paid now rather than 89 days from now when the financial guy says, no, it makes sense for cash flow. So all of these things that each of them knew how to do when they couldn't stick to what they know and just let things happen, things really went south. And Mm. the idea of marketing bringing the Chamber of Commerce in for a free evening of hors d'oeuvres and drinks at this vegan restaurant with vegan wine. And one of my buddies is a foodie and he said it was the best vegan food he's ever tasted. It's in a prime location in Santa Monica. The chef thought they were giving away free food (laughs) rather than doing a great marketing ploy. So rather than impressing all the people at the Chamber of Commerce, suddenly they feel like they are being scowled at by the person who's supposed to be their best friend. So On multiple sides, there were mistakes made. And one other big factor to the failure of this restaurant, which lasted two and a half years until we finally closed doors, there was a second wave of of funding that we brought in a little bit to try and scrape by to make the the restaurant survive. And in the end, it failed, but it lasted two and a half years. But it was a brand new complex in an area of Santa Monica that was being built. And prime, prime, prime location, there were so many people bidding to get this property. And what happened was we thought that there was going to be 1,600 units of prime customers living in the same building as this restaurant. And in the end, over half of the units were bought as a secondary home and Airbnb wasn't it legal in Santa Monica. So rather than having 1,600 units, we had half of those empty. And so you have 800 units ready prime customers rather than the 1600 and then things you can't expect the last one i'll go into was on the schematic there was a beautiful park right in front of the restaurant the restaurant was on the first floor open facing out in the beautiful southern california and the pictures showed all these beautiful people walking in front of the restaurant towards this other area that's just that's an attraction and then there's about this 15 foot wide cement block right through the middle of the housing complex, the condo complex, that was more of a dumpster access road than anything. And guess which road was used by everybody walking to and from the complex? Efficiency. They saved a half a block by walking through the cement concrete alley rather than along the park in front of the restaurant. So those are some of the things that we just didn't prepare for, didn't think about, look into enough. And in the end, it left all of us shocked that with all of the ingredients, some of the smartest people I know, the best chefs I know, we couldn't make a go of this restaurant. Wow. I have a lot, lot of thoughts on that, but what are the lessons that you've learned if you could just kind of list them out? The biggest one was introducing them. I would have 
probably had a bigger role in the initial meetings. So I set mm. them up and they ran together with their meetings of deciding whether they're going to work together or not. I think I would have probably noticed some personality conflicts that they weren't able to recognize amongst themselves. Mm. So that's one of the big ones. The second one was going over the schematic and seeing where the location was, you know, knowing, finding out for sure, are all these going to be occupied units? Those are two things. So that's just, you yep. know, doing your homework. And, and like I said, I, I put the faith in the genius that geniuses that I was excited to work with rather than doing some, some common sense things that in their busyness they didn't do. And mm. in my peripheral role would have probably had time to at least look into. Got it. So let me highlight some of the things that I take away from it and let me know if I'm missing anything or it's something you would add. Basically, I want to tell a story about when I worked as an analyst at a particular investment bank, I had a boss who I really admired, very, very smart guy. And what he did was he hired, you know, the best of the best. I was a, you know, a leading bank analyst and, you know, he hired the best telecom analysts. I mean, each of the analysts were exceptional and they were all nice. In fact, we all remain good friends. And this is, you know, 15 years ago. And, you know, he did everything right. And we all liked him. I mean, he was a great guy. But the one thing he never did is that he never brought that team together. And what I learned, the lesson, like we just never really worked together. We worked as separate entities in a team. And what I learned is that you can have the best of the best on a team, but you will never win unless they're given the direction and the support to work together to achieve a common goal. Otherwise, they all go off in their own directions, you know, with their own, you know, drive and all that stuff. But without a manager to say, this is our aim and this is where we're going and this is how we're going to get there and bringing those resources together, you'll never be number one. You'll be okay. It can be good. Yeah. But it's very, very hard to become number one without clear management direction. Absolutely, Andrew. One of my favorite words, my favorite word changes about every six months or so, but for a while it's been synergy. And just because, like you said, you can have the best of the best working together, but to create that right thing, that recipe that really creates the, the right taste, the right success, I think there has to be synergy. And we all, we have different skills. When I do speaking engagements, one of the first things I do is I have them clasp their hands together and half the room are the logical, you know, right brain people or left brain, half of right. And I say, you need to know who you, you are, not so, because when you're hiring people, you want to hire people the opposite because you're mm. going to need synergies that are different from yours to work together to create things happen. Yeah, I totally agree. A bunch of individual silos trying to create success is a lot harder than having an interwoven group. Yeah, and that goes into a whole nother area that we don't have time to discuss, but I wrote a book called How to Transform Your Business with Dr. Deming's 14 Points. And it was looking at really the father of the quality movement and his message that when you start rewarding individuals for their performance, you start destroying the potential of that team. Because like an orchestra, if every individual played to their utmost ability, it would sound terrible as they all stand up. And Interesting. And his point was, was that you have to sub-optimize people and parts of an organization to get the optimum output, meaning in orchestra, sometimes the percussion is dead silent while the strings are playing. 
And sometimes they all play together. But that's the job of management is to try to optimize the output. And of course, the world is driven these days by ranking individuals and individual performance KPIs. And he predicted at that time that this would be a very destructive force over time. So the second thing that I take away, and this is my final thing that, you know, my business, the coffee works that I started with my best friend, Dale in Thailand, we've always been a B2B coffee roaster, supplying coffee shops, restaurants, hotels, things like that. And over the years, we're always constantly asked, why don't you go into retail? Mm -hmm. And the first answer is that, you know, we're not really retail guys. We're much more manufacturing, that type of guys. But that, that doesn't necessarily stop us. Of course, the other thing is that, you know, our customers were retail, so we didn't want to compete with our customers. But the most important thing really is that we were terrified about location, 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 mm-hmm. picking the right locations. It just wasn't our area of expertise. So we've supplied, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of different coffee shops and locations over the years. And every single one of them, they go into that location thinking this is going to be amazing. And we have one story of a guy that, you know, he really liked his passion for coffee and we did everything we could to support him. But when he told us, hey, you got to come to my place and see, it's amazing. And, you know, we basically went to down a, a main street, off to a smaller street, then off to a smaller street, then at the end of another smaller street around a slight corner is his shop. Uh-huh, yeah. You know, and we just thought there's nobody ever going to come to this place. And he shut down very quickly after that. And it made us realize that the most important thing from a retail perspective is sit and count. Uh-huh. And before you go to a retail location, yourself and others, get a team of people, spend a week sitting and counting the people that walk past that place. Yeah. And get one of those hand counters and hold those and each day tallied up for mornings, lunches, evenings, and understand your numbers. And once you do that, you'll have a different perspective before you finally go into that particular location or you know any others. So those would be my main takeaways from anything you'd add? No, that's absolutely great. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, sit and count. All right. Well, based on what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? And remember, let's go to that young man or woman right now, today, across the world. My listeners are all around the world. That person is being offered a chance to invest in a business with someone that they respect And Mm -hmm. everything seems like it's going to work, a restaurant or a factory or whatever. What's one piece of advice you would give that person as they go into that situation? Yeah, one is I was definitely blinded by the track record of this person whom I knew well. It wasn't a resume that I didn't double check. It's somebody I'd known for years before I got involved. So I was totally blinded by the fact that failure was even an option. I think I probably would have still invested doing more, but I I definitely didn't do my homework enough to figure Mm. out if it was a good idea. And then the second thing is if you do get into a situation of with a bad investment, find something, start right away rather than complaining and wallowing in sorrow, 
get up and figure out exactly what you can do next. Kind of a funnier failure I had was I bought a, I got a job. I moved back to California as a, after I graduated, I moved back to California for seven months to get another degree, teaching English as a second language. During that time, I needed a job. So I got a job at a bookstore making, I think it was going to be $8 an hour. I bought a car, a beat up car for $250 so that I could get there and back. The car broke down the first time I took it out, exploded, worth nothing. And I bought it for $450 and I sold it for junk for $200. But as I'm walking back from this broken down car, I see a little help wanted sign in a Chinese restaurant about a block from my apartment. I just walked in desperate and told him who I was and got a job right there because I needed somebody. And in the end, I'm making 21, 23 bucks an hour selling Chinese food when at the bookstore, sure, that would have been cool, but I would have been, I really, in the end of the number of months I worked there, I made hundreds of times more money than I would have at the bookstore. So that broken car ended up to be a really good blessing. So always look for the next opportunity and look for the positive in everything. Things work out with all the failures and the successes I've seen. Things work out is still my number one motto. That's great. And I, I have a friend of mine from my youth who would oftentimes say, how do you know that that bad experience is not actually a good experience? Absolutely. You yep. know, like losing that job, getting fired, it could propel you to something way beyond what you could imagine. So I love that. All right, last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? I've got, I always divide work, family, and self. My work goal is I had some really good public speaking things and maybe chamber of commerce type things because of my book coming out last, last year. My goal is to have more of those. I really enjoy it. And more than that, I, I think I really help people a lot. My number one family goal is to make my wife's year as good as my year last year. My year last year was just over the top good. And I want to make hers that good this year. And my self goal is to climb another high mountain. Last year, I climbed the highest mountain in Europe, which is Mount Elbrus in Russia. And hopefully it'll be Kilimanjaro this year, but we'll see. But a high mountain, those are my three goals per category for the year. Fantastic. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like these, previous episodes and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Eric, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. And I also want to congratulate you for being one of the brave few who are willing to come on the show and turn their worst investment ever into their best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, it was great to be here, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. And if anybody does want to find out more about me, my book, Our Next Extraordinary, is stories through life and how people can find meaning, purpose, passion through those things. Best way to connect with me on all fronts is my website, ericseverson.com. And there you go, Andrew. I sure appreciate being on your show. Fantastic. And we'll put all that in the show notes. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to challenge you to go from ordinary to extraordinary. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our well fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.